you remember back in the day where like talk shows would like, yeah. have, like really bad teenagers and right. they would send them off to those boot camps in like Texas and like the random place in Utah. So yeah. I worked <laughs> in one of those places in Texas and loved it. So these girls were like cutters, they were prostitutes, they were drug addicts, and they were all under 23. And I absolutely loved working at this boot camp. So I'm like 25, 26 years old, driving on it to this like horse farm of like a wonderful kind of boot camp. It's like, oh, Tasha, uh, can you um, help me with, and I'm gonna make up the name, Samantha. Um, can you help me with Samantha? Um, she just ran out of my office. Um, I really think she, she was triggered. Um, and she was like, and I was like, oh wow, which way did she go? And there was like a forest and it was just, this girl could have gone anywhere because she was triggered in a session with the psychologist. And now the psychologist is asking me to go and find the girl. Welcome to the Dreams by Any Means Motivation Station. I'm your host, Ed Doxon. Today I have a very special guest here on the show. Um, I think this is a guest that everyone, literally everyone that listens to the podcast can benefit from, uh, whether they are already interested in this field or not interested in this field. And when I say interested, just interested in some of the great benefits um, that could come from this and specifically in the African-American community. And that's talking about therapy. Um, we have Dr. Latasha Russell Harris, who is a so social scientist, racial justice consultant, doctor of clin clinical psychology of the Association of Black Psychologists, president of the South Florida chapter. And that's just a few to name. But uh, welcome to Dreams by Any Means, Dr. Tasha. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Glad for you to be here today. So um, before we jump into all the amazing things that you're doing in the field, um, as far as around therapy, psychology, um, you know, helping people uh, get their mind right, helping address mental health, uh, racial inequities and those type of things. Let's just start off and talk about you and where you're from. So you're originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, correct? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I am a Midwesterner. I um, moved to Atlanta at 17 after graduating from high school. And then um, I actually, after graduating from Spelman in Atlanta, I then moved to Houston, Texas, became a teacher, then a principal. And then I decided to start this entire field in mental health um, and ended up in Berkeley, California in the Bay. Um, and then I just moved here to South Florida in 2014. I can't say just anymore, huh? When it's nine, <laughs> right. when it's nine years, you got to say I live here. Okay. I live yeah. Here. Yeah. Nice. So um, something you just mentioned before we get past this. So going from Ann Arbor, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, Ann Arbor and Atlanta, those are two different type of makeup of cities, correct? Oh, it's true. I wanted to be around progressive black folks. That's just yeah. the exact <laughs> truth. Yeah. I was tired of the only nice car, like the drug dealer's cars. <laughs> Why is always the neighborhood that's the good neighborhood is always the white neighborhood. I wanted to go to places where a nice neighborhood could be all black, which is why I loved places like Houston and Atlanta. There are lots of places around the, the country, but there's only a few where we really are running some things. Right, right. Agreed. And um, Ann Arbor is more kind of a college town as well, right? Yeah, for sure. University of Michigan. I mean, it was a great city where I learned a lot of diversity. I can't take that away. Um, the, you know, I grew up around a lot of Arabs, a lot of Persians, a lot of um, Middle Eastern, which is not a normal uh, population that a lot of folks um, are around. I grew up around a lot of Asian Americans um, and black and white. It's, it's kind of interesting. I didn't, I ended up learning Spanish, wanting to have my major in college, um, Spanish, but I was never really around a lot of Latinos. Um, yeah. It was uh, something that was new for me. I was like, oh, wow, all these people are coming to America that speaks Spanish was going to talk to him. So that's right, why right. I picked my major. <laughs> got you, got you. Now, when you got to Spelman, 
Um, you know, coming from Ann Arbor and not even just being in a city like Atlanta, but also attending a prestigious school. Um, how was that transition, you know, from Ann Arbor to Spelman? Was Spelman always on your list? Was it something that, you know, family members went there or this is a school that you just decided? Oh, that's a good question. So yeah. my parents met at um, North Carolina A&T. So the HBCU thing was around. But okay. my mom was actually surprised because I wasn't a very, like, bougie kid. I wasn't a very girly girl. Yeah. And so she was like, you're going to go to Spelman because of the way that Spelman women were always thought of. And so I loved going, you know, you go to those um historically black college tours when you're in um, high school in 10th grade parents make sure you take your child you'd be surprised it could change the trajectory of their life but i went on like a college tour the black college tour in 10th grade and i really liked spelman i thought it was so cool to be around other um women that were just like me that like you know might have been the president of their high school um captain of the track team and like really wanted to do well in school and didn't always want to talk about boys and wanted to get good grades. I, I was like around people that were just like me. It was the best decision I ever made in my entire life was going nice. to Spelman. Nice, nice, nice. And so you were Spanish and pre-med major, correct? Oh yeah. So random, right? I literally was like, I think I want to be a bilingual doctor, which I am. <laughs> I, just was, I just decided to do doctor of clinical psychology instead of medical doctor. Okay. Okay. Nice. Now, I want to um, not just, you know, ponder too much on this question, but when we, when we talk about the podcast, we talk about networking, we talk about location, getting out your comfort zone. So I know you mentioned, you know, get into that city um, where you wanted to be around more black people doing positive things, having that black circle, that network. Um, when you got to Atlanta, and I'm asking this because I know a lot of people that listen to my friends, um, they transition to different cities. Some have good experiences, some have bad experiences. When you got to Atlanta, did you feel like, the connectivity immediately or did it take you a while to kind of get into that space and get acclimated with the you know Atlanta community oh this is a good question so the truth is pretty much every city that I that the first two cities that I moved to after um high school Atlanta and Houston were very welcoming um the beautiful thing was when you're a black progressive person and another black progressive person sees you we see each other and so no there's no competition um I absolutely thought it was um, more interesting to see that people were um, not down to earth. I remember that. I was like, oh, wow, she's like the, uh, um, what was it, like the mayor's daughter or the senator's daughter was like, you know, I was in class with them. And I saw the entitlement. But I yeah. also found my type of girls who actually had work studies and where I was a waitress at Outback Steakhouse. Like, we was working our butts off, you know, and still <laughs> doing well and still going to the club. You know what I mean? And right. maybe still um, kicked it. But it was like, after we finished our, um, after going to the um, library, you know, um, for the, for the, maybe a couple hours after classes. So for me, I think you just need to find your people, but believe that they're out there. I do think that only comes from when you know yourself. So a lot right. of people get caught up because they're, they're followers and they're still trying to prove themselves and hope that people like them. But you'd be surprised when you are like, have a strong sense of self, people will be drawn to that, which will be other strong people that also have a strong sense of self. So Atlanta and Houston were great cities. Um, it was the Bay Area in um, Florida. Los Angeles, I appreciate it. But the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco, and South Florida, oh, no, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. I <laughs> was definitely not embraced um, there in the and Bay. What part of the Bay were you in? Uh, I lived in San Leandro, which is like the Oakland side. Um, okay. And my school was in Berkeley, which is also the Oakland side. When you uh, live in the Bay, there's like the east side of the bridge and then the west side of the bridge, which is the San Francisco side. Um, yeah. And yeah, that was the most racist time of my life. I was 29 to 33 and hated it. Wow. Absolutely. Wow, okay. Yeah, I don't I don't um, <laughs> I, I don't apologize for uh, other people's 
you know, illiteracies, racial illiteracies. Right. Right, right. And okay, so when you left Atlanta and went to Houston to become a teacher, a uh, math teacher, correct? Yeah, fifth grade math and seventh grade Spanish. All right. And now fifth grade math, seventh grade Spanish. But then you also became a principal at 24. So how was that? You know, I I know a lot of friends in education, but I don't think I've ever met a principal that young. <laughs> well, let me tell you. So I've been crazy a long time. I like to tell you that a long time, right? And so the, the thing I have to acknowledge is my mom was a principal my whole life, middle school and high school. And my father was like a process leader at Fort Motor Company in Detroit. And so I come from leaders. Let me start there, right? So leading was very normal, but not bossy, because you got to learn how to be a leader and, and not always be bossy. You got to learn how to do both. Um, but the truth is, it was just natural for me. This is what happened. I was a, I was a lead, um, was I in seventh grade Spanish? But I'm like 23 years old, and I'm leading this like parent-teacher, um, student, like big old like conference in the gym. And we're talking about something and I'm speaking in English and then I'm translating it to Spanish and I have the demand of the entire uh, gymnasium and a superintendent walked up to me and said, I want you to be the principal of one of my schools. She couldn't believe this 23 year old had the attention of maybe, I don't know, 1500 people that were Latinos, blacks and whites and and Asian, um, more more Vietnamese um, kids and their parents. She couldn't believe it. Like, who is this young thing that's, um, yeah. Right. And so <laughs> I literally um, learned becoming a principal because I was like, all right, well, let me see. Um, I learned there that I'd rather actually t- counsel than to sit up in boardroom, you know, attendance, buses, and field trips. Like, I actually didn't like it at all. I had yeah. the ability to be an administrator, but I don't really like to meet just to meet. I like to really like. Right. Like to to impact. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't enough for me. That title didn't do nothing for my, my life. Now you, I left. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I'm sorry to cut you off because I want to just ask this because I think um, this is important. Do you feel like in that field, you know, education, just in service, Gene, do you feel like the higher you go up, it kind of like it's harder to really serve and connect with the main focus, which is the people. I do. I do. Yeah. I actually hated it. I really did. I'm telling you, the, the superintendent and I can't stand this lady. Did you yeah. understand? <laughs> Her name is Mrs. Clough. Okay. I say it out loud every time people ask me. Yeah. This woman who was an elder in her 50s, probably at the time, um, this was 2003 or four. And she was going to talk to this 24 year old, like young woman that's like clearly you know, trying her best as a leader and a principal of her, one of her schools. And she literally basically said, you have too much integrity to work, work for me. Wow. And I said, you show right. Cause I don't cut corners. I don't, I don't run a, I don't want to run a school like a business. And so that was like the beginning of, you know, there's some times where you get that question asked in interviews of when you see something wrong, will you say something, even if you're, you know, wanting to keep your job and I'm the one that, yeah, I'm going to say something. I don't want to, I don't want to stand in like places where integrity is not the norm. And if it comes down from the leaders, I'm good. I don't want to be one of them. And so yeah. it was nice to make a, you know, maybe 70 or $80,000 at 24 years old. But I immediately left and Katrina hit, um, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and I went to go work for FEMA. It was, that was the beginning of me knowing how well I work in crisis. So right. all of that kind of, you know how they say all things work together for the good. So it was a yeah. blessing that I couldn't stand being a principal for me to then work for FEMA and leave without any guilt yeah yeah no no great stuff okay so after leaving that let's dive right into this therapy where did that come from how did you get to therapy lane you know what was the moment where you was like this is my purpose this is my calling oh that's a good question so i have a really good friend um who's uh her name's dr akisha jones and she heard someone on the radio like a dr phil or dr ruth 
and she said, um, she called me immediately while I'm in Houston. She was living in Atlanta. She was like, Tosh, this is what you should be doing. You should be a psychologist. This is how you talk. This is how you walk. Like, this is you. Like, you are this all day. And I was like, you think so? And so from there, I started then working in like a field, which is like the mental health field. You remember back in the day where like talk shows would like, yeah. have like really bad teenagers and right. they would send them off to those boot camps in like Texas and like the random place in Utah. So yeah. I worked <laughs> in one of those places in Texas and loved it. So these girls were like cutters, they were prostitutes, they were drug addicts, and they were all under 23. And I absolutely loved working at this boot camp. So I'm like 25, 26 years old, driving on it to this like horse farm of like a wonderful kind of boot camp like oh tasha uh can you um help me with and i'm gonna make up the name samantha um can you help me with samantha um she just ran out of my office um i really think she she was triggered um and she was like and i was like oh wow which way did she go and there was like a forest and it was just this girl could have gone anywhere because she was triggered in a session with the psychologist and now the psychologist is asking me to go and find the girl because i was like the rehab counselor so this woman who was making and i quote Three times my salary. I'm making thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> right? I like to talk about money. People don't like to talk about things like this. I like to be <laughs> I'm making thirty thousand yeah. dollars a year. She's making ninety, probably. And she asking me to talk to her patient who walked out of her office. She literally says, and I quote, You know you're the only one that can really get through to these girls. Oh wow. <laughs> all, let me get your degree. Right. I need your salary yeah. and I need your degree. So at that moment, I then applied um, to see what did I need to do to become a doctor of clinical psychology or a psychologist? And it was to take the GRE. I'm literally like 27 years old and I started my um, grad school at 29. So it was like my third, my second career because um, the first one was in education. But it was the best thing I could have ever done after going to Spelman was becoming this degree, even though it was the hardest degree I've ever gotten in my life. Yeah, yeah. Because if I'm not mistaken, I was reading you went back. You went back to school after 12 years, right? Yeah, 12 years. You got a good memory. Yeah, like yeah. I'm literally like doing just fine. I was making with FEMA. I was making ten thousand dollars a month, chasing hurricanes and earthquakes, and working with people that are devastated. Which sounds like wow, she's a little weird. Yeah, I am. I like <laughs> really like bringing that like alleviating suffering or pain, whatever I'm able to do in the healing profession. And right. I'm, I was it, for whatever reason, it was a gift. And I had never really worked it like that. And then I just learned how to make, you know, a living off of what I believe was a guy has gifted me to do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And now through this therapy lane, you know, as I was saying them again, and we know, um, I think now, you know, in the black community today, it's growing, it's more accessible, people are talking about it more. But when you first got into the lane, you know, what was your experience of, of trying to really, um, I would say, encourage and influence um, the African-American community to really take more advantage of their mental health? It's, that's a good question. So um, I've been in it since 06. So okay. this is 17 years later. But I'm going to try to give you a little something. And I just did, I mean, like just did a session at a black church okay. in um, um, Coral Gables, which was wonderful. I was received by them. The age in the room um, of the congregation was like probably between 30 and like 80 years old. Um, and I remember in the beginning, I felt like I had to prove myself. Right. So I had to explain what my credentials were that. You know, that just so like I'm almost like needing to be received versus just being myself and knowing that they will receive me. So I remember that was a big thing. Um, 
sometimes it's hard for elders to listen to someone that's younger than them to tell them about how they can get to a healing profession. And then I learned when you're effective, it don't really matter about your age, that people yeah. will listen to you. But that was the beginning of it. Um, I remember even that the things that I would say out loud, I would say things like, you guys, uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome is real. Dr. Joy DeGruy, that book, I don't know if you've ever read it. It's real. We were really taught to shut up and take it. So we can mm -hmm. either continue to shut up and take it, like the little girl um, being raped in the in the back house um, by Massa, and just know that he gets to do what he wants to do with your daughter, and we don't say nothing, and we could continue to just say nothing even though we're suffering through the norm, or we could actually start talking out loud and say, I'm pissed off. I'm mad, I'm sad, and I'm hurt. You know, I avoid people. I am, um, the way I think of the world is pretty tainted. You know what I mean? Like, I don't come outside. I literally don't know how to make friends. Like, all those different things can come from the PTSD from literally your, like, emotional safety just snatched from you. And that's yeah. historical. So it makes sense that from where we come from that it doesn't, we don't think we need to talk to anybody. To talk to were white males or white women. So don't feel safe in a room as black. Uh, whatever, we can call them Sally and Matthew. You know what I mean? When we really want to talk yeah. to a Keisha and a David. And it's like, yeah. no, you and you now now we look like that. So now what's your excuse? Um, right. anybody that is always still thinking of, I don't know if I want to do it. I'm like, just try it. Cause my favorite thing is when people come to my couch or when we talk over Zoom for the first time, they're like, Oh my God, I should have done this 20 years ago. That's like right, the right. best thing I could ever hear at the end of a session. Cause we all need to talk about what yeah yeah i agree you know and i grew up that same way um you know growing up in the church growing up black everything's pray about it give it to god man up stick it out and um i didn't you know i i need to get back into it but i went to therapy in grad school um because it was free it was part of you know your student activity fee and uh rest in peace and my cousin he committed suicide and it kind of messed with me so you know i was like let me go get us to try to talk to someone and i ended up going you yeah, this was uh for about twenty seven. I'm gonna say yeah, twenty no twenty six. Wow. Yeah, so That's I went there. Thing. Yeah, and it was um it was such so refreshing because you know I went there just for that, but then I ended up talking to her about everything else that was going on in life, and she was able to connect stuff to, you know, stuff that happened in the past and how that. It's all connected, now. isn't that what's crazy? Yeah. Everything's connected. That's my favorite part too. Like the session almost takes a, you know, kind of a lane of its own. Right, right. And it felt so, um, you know, like they always say is that, you know, granted, I'm close to my mom, my dad, my uncle's mentors, a whole nine, but you feel a little more open and vulnerable for someone that doesn't know you. And then someone that isn't, you know, you know, they're not going to have a judgmental thing about it. Like, for example, me and my mom are super close. But if I go to her with an issue, it's like her perspective of me is it's still going to always be her baby at the end of the day. So, right, right, right. Yeah. Without the, you don't want that bias. Yeah, it's kind of right. cool where you can go somewhere where you don't have to be fine. I tell people that all the time. That's my, what I try to do every time you come into my office is like, you can take off the I'm fine um, kind of mask and just not be okay. And let's talk about why you're not okay. Right, right. So I'm sure there are many different, um, you know, avenues of it, not just getting people involved in it, but just as a professional and other therapists that may be listening or aspiring therapists, what are some of the challenges that you come across, um, you know, working in therapy? Well, let me tell you a few things that I've heard from people that come see me after being around or having a therapist that was kind of 
what word can I use? Can I use the word whack? Yes, yeah, we're gonna yeah. use the word whack. <laughs> whack, lame, boring, something. Like some, 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 there are some of my colleagues that I say out loud that I wouldn't even send my dog to. So that's a thing, meaning that they are so maybe by the book that it feels like they're reading the book while they're talking to you and they're not relatable. And so I tell people, clinicians all the time, really work on continuing to keep your personality. If you, if you, I mean, we don't need to be out here just crying and having like, but you can actually just be human in the room. Um, I think a lot of times uh, with, with people that do what I do, um, we have to take care of ourselves, right? So I think that's what you're asking of just how yeah. is it the, the challenge of being on the healing, in the healing side of the profession? So, I mean, there are a lot of people that um, need to know what triggers them. I tell people all the time that do my job. If you still have some things that are unprocessed, like sexual abuse, from so that's not good. That means you are bleeding right. on the patients. So once again, get your own yes. therapist. There's nothing wrong with being a therapist that has a therapist. I know I have one. Now, I always say I like to talk to males because males talk straight. I like I like direct communication. And so I like talking to male um, therapists. I also I have a female therapist um, as a couple um, in, in my relationship. I You know what I mean? Like there's I'm never exempt to hear somebody else's kind of like third party, non-biased, neutral response to maybe what I'm doing wrong. Because sometimes we can't see our own stuff. Um, and so yeah. To me, I think it's freeing to be the client or the patient on the couch. You're just like, oh, tell me what you see. Um, once you find one that fits and that you that that you trust, you got to find one that fits so you can deepen your your healing and your journey with their right, 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 absolutely. And I'm sticking on that. I think I'm asking also too from my my perspective, and also I have these conversations. You know, there's a thing um, when we talk about uh, males in therapy, specifically black males. And, you know, like I said, how we were raised it used to be uh, boys don't cry, man up, toughen up. And I think today, you know, you all do have people. I have friends that are, you know, specifically my male friends that are now getting into therapy. They're opening up more. They're noticing that they need to heal some childhood trauma. But at the same time, too, it's not even just black. I just think we talk about gender roles and we try to say non-gender. I think, you know, females in society, nobody still wants a man that is displaying. And I, I don't want to use the word weakness, but for lack of better words, but this plane just being so soft, so this, so that. And I say that because, you know, I have older women in my family where they'll say things like, literally, I remember a quote, like, you know, men don't try. Men make it happen. Or men go out and do this. Men do that. And in the midst of it, you may see some men who die from old age. Or you may see with black men, you know, have stress levels and those type of levels. So, a lot of uh, big papas out here. They yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, how do we oh, get into this? Let them cry or just be freaking like human. And yeah. Ended. The elders got to um, unlearn some stuff. I say it out, out loud all the time. Some <laughs> like, of y'all have taught us some things that I have to make, you know, I have to make a big effort to take it out of my mindset. Right. It's unfortunate. We always wondering why there's, go to a church right now. How many, how many older men are sitting there? Oh my God. Right? How Go to a wedding. Where are they? And Even if you go to the schools. <laughs> go to the schools. Exactly. It just goes on and on. Go to the grocery store and it's like Black men do die early. And I wonder why. Because who is giving them room to speak about how they're doing? We're not. We're doing all the daggone talking as women. See, see, nobody say about that stuff out loud. Nobody like to say this out loud. Dr. Tasha, you're a woman. How can you say this? I'm telling you. Men literally come to me all the time. And their biggest complaint is that they. So yeah. you're literally telling me that yo do because you talking and interrupting him every time he's trying to share. Come to me and spend a hundred. $200 an hour 
so that I can hear him when you can do it for free? <laughs> right. <laughs> that, can't, yeah. that can't be my problem. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I know sometimes as a woman, we get so excited that we interrupt y'all because we want to finish your sentence as if y'all can't put one together. It is, it's so yeah. disrespectful, but we were socialized to kind of talk over each other. It's crazy. How right. We talk. But men, y'all were taught to like listen and let the brother finish. And then you talk. It's kind of cool. I didn't learn that until I was like 33 years old. I'm literally in a jail and I'm watching men, young men that are in jail, wait for each other to finish talking. Even when they were upset, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Even in jail? <laughs> yeah. But as women, we talking over each other all the time and we really can hear and listen at the same time. We crazy. Right, right. <laughs> but to answer your question, yes, men need to be able to talk. A lot of times there's like a disease a dis-ease of the body when you literally hold on to too much and never let anything go and act like you're quote-unquote fine all the deck on time when you're not but nobody gives you room to have a problem i have watched the way my grandmother treats me and the way grandmother treats my, my brother i remember this at like 12 or 15 or 20 i would come in the um, room or the my grandma's house and she'd ask me did i want a banana or some fruit and then my brother walked in the room and it would be like hey can you um fix blah 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 in the attic Love you. And can you go down in the cellar and do this? And it was almost like, dang, we always looking to y'all to fix stuff, you know, and do stuff. But very rarely are we really asking how are you doing. So that's that. I always say that's our fault. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's so healthy to talk, you know. And I think for me, I ask a lot because I'm lucky where, since a kid, you know, outside of my family, I've always kept a good group of, of older men. Like literally now, my main chat. It's myself, two friends my age, and the two other guys. They're 43, 44, married for Wow, that is so good. Yeah, so we talk every day. You know, we laugh, we joke, but it's like it's an open space. And I've noticed, I think, through dating, through meeting new friends, like a lot of people really don't have anybody to talk to. And I think sometimes that's why you may see people on social media, you know, maybe being over-transparent or pouring their hearts out or, you know, sharing stuff online that maybe shouldn't be shared online. But I had to learn that sometimes people just want to hear. That's all they want. That's it. They don't want you to talk about yourself at all. Right. Yeah. And and that was actually about to lead into my next question, just talking about. So you're the president of the Association of Black Psychologists in South Florida. How long have you been in that leadership role? Oh, so for four years I was the um the president and I'm now the president elect me and the vice president we just switched because we loved working with each other. Oh nice. So um yeah, I've been on the executive executive board probably for eight years. Um, but yes, I was the president for four. And it's um it's like a beautiful thing to be a part of the Association of Black Psychologists. You could only imagine how I think we're like um of the field that's black. And so we don't get to sit around with each other and talk about the challenges, as you asked, as clinicians that are black in our own black communities. Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Now, um, I know your experiences range from uh, L.A., Philly, Chicago, Virginia, um, even in Japan and those different places, but specifically with South Florida. We all know. I tell people so. Once I relocate, I was like, when people say only certain things happen in Florida, it's actually true. Florida lifts up to that. Ten four like, on that. Oh lord, that's a whole <laughs> yeah, so, the podcast right there. 
how how has that been, you know, um, coming from Ann Arbor, being a Spelman, we talked about being, um, you know, uh, black progressive and those things. But those who may not know Florida's makeup, it's a lot of Latin people. It's a heavy Caribbean culture. How has it been, you know, really addressing mental health issues and therapy with people, but just dealing with like that mixing bowl of so many cultures? I'm sure every client can be totally different because, you know, it's just a, a place where it's like a melting pot. How much time you got, sir? How much time you got? <laughs> First and I of know, all, I know from just working in retail, dealing with the different it's cultures, deep. I can't imagine. It's so deep. I'm like, where is this? Are we still in America? <laughs> right. That's the question. Like, dang, how are Black Americans at the bottom in South Florida? Like, I will literally be looked down upon. Like, oh, where are you from? From I always say, this is the only place that people ask you where are you from twice. Well, where are you from? Oh, okay, right. Michigan. Well, where are your people from? Oh, they're from Philadelphia, North Carolina. Well, where are they from? I don't know. We were stolen 400 years ago. We don't right. know where we're from. I think it's off of West Africa, maybe Ghana. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. We can pick a, pick a country, but we don't know. But down here, because so many people know where they were dropped off, because let's still call it what it is. They don't know which African country they're from either, but they do know that they were dropped off in Haiti, Jamaica, um, Nicaragua, right? Um or Dominica, it's a blessing that you know. It's a blessing that you kept your culture. It's a blessing that you know your customs. It's a blessing that you maintained what you, how you eat and how you speak in the patois. It's great. But do not feel bad because we were beaten and oppressed by, for so many years that we had to learn to speak the way you hear me speaking right now. Sir. Right, 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 right. And ma'am, <laughs> you know, like at some point, it's like we have to prove ourselves as black Americans in South Florida, and I can't stand it. I ain't never felt this in my entire life where people look down on me that look like that, me. See, that's what I'm gonna say, they look like, look like yeah, me. It, it, I'm like, when yeah, did you get to be better out. than me? Because you know about the yeah. curry goat, and I'm learning. I don't get it. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, what happened? And so once you learn what happened, it's a real historical thing about black Americans treated West Indians and Caribbean folks very badly when they came over here. So they started to develop this kind of negativity towards us and not realizing that now they feel a certain way towards us, anticipating that we think this way of them. And folks like you and I, who didn't come from that, we're like, whoa, where's the salt from? Yeah, like you know? what is going on? But it's like <laughs> historical from the 80s and the 90s of basically Caribbean folks being treated badly. Um, it's bad how they were treated from some black Americans, but we're not all this way. And some people did it out of ignorance. And so we, we need some healing in our own community. So, But to answer your question, because I know you understand the Black relations, Black American relations and the Caribbean relations yeah. down here. There are a lot of people that are of the Caribbean that are in my office. Um, they're sometimes secretly in my office because they don't want anybody else to know. But a lot of people are here um, that literally are from a lot of different countries in the Caribbean. Um, they were They always say that. You know, in a Haitian household, you can never talk about how you feel. In a Jamaican yeah. household, that your mom um, need, or parents just want you to be happy that you're here and you can't complain about anything. You know what I mean? And so that becomes how and what keeps us silent, even in our 40s and our 30s, um, because you were taught that your feelings don't matter from your household, um, where they basically were just saying, be grateful that we're here um, and shut up. Yeah. All historical as well. That's still oppression. Yeah, absolutely. No, you, you, but we've gotten through it. We've gotten with some, it's a lot of folks that are here. We got NFL um, players, yeah, um, that talk about going to therapy. We got Charlemagne saying it every day on Breakfast Club, yeah, which I appreciate. 
Um, we got Love and Hip Hop that sometimes they'll have resident therapists um, that, you know, where they really will yield to like, what do you see and what do you, what's really happening when you're fighting on reality TV? And the truth is, I don't feel heard or I need to be validated and they hurt my feelings, right? And so those things are becoming sexy, which I love. Mental health is going. It definitely is talked about more and more now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I agree. It's way more than I've ever heard about it. And then you, you also see people kind of being champions for who you may have never thought would be, you know, a champion for it in that space. It's so true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. So before we close out, like I said, I know this for those listening, this is just like a this is a quick warm up. We're going to do an uh, in-person one. Oh, yes. Super. But, um, you know, uh, I want to ask just being in this field, um, working in therapy. And I know you mentioned something about, you know, not putting all the stuff in the clients. But outside of this, you know, what do you do to really uh, sustain a great work life balance where you listen to everyone's issues? I'm sure some stuff may sometimes emotionally get to you. But, you know, being booked up in uh, different speaking engagements, how does Dr. Tasha work to have that balance you know, between work and your personal life? It's a good question. So remember when I said earlier that I do feel that I'm gifted for this. And so yeah, yeah. when you're gifted for something, whatever that is, you could be an artist right? A vocal artist, uh, um, maybe even a um, visual artist, um, or you could be uh, an actual, you could be the bus driver and you could be the janitor. Um, but whatever it is that you are passionate about, a lot of times you don't really tire easily. And I have to say that because I work 12 hours every day, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Five days a week. And so a lot of people are like, you do what, when? And so for me, those 12 hours go by so fast because I'm literally honored to be in their lives that they let me in, knowing that years ago, no one would be talking about this on a couch with a clinician. Like, so I'm almost like, it's like a humbling experience for those 12 hours. Now, there are times that I hear the roughest um, things that one could hear that's in someone's real life. I always say the some of the hardest things are to hear when like a young woman or a young man when they talk about their childhood trauma and they were literally sexually abused by their parent their biological parent i'm talking about young men and their mothers doing certain things to them and yeah. young women and their fathers doing something and that one always gets me you know what i mean that always gets me there i'm like could you imagine the lens that you think of the world if your own parent right dismissed you know your own emotional safety or um literally forgot that you were not their spouse and that you were not their peer and that their job was to nurture you and they didn't do that. So that one gets me a lot of times. But the interesting thing is for me, just like when I work with drug addicts, so I work with somebody that's been struggling on crack for like 20, 30 years mm -hmm. and they'll finally come into my office in their 50s um, and for me, I'm like huh, we're talking about them struggling with the cocaine or the alcohol, knowing in my mind I'm knowing that I'm not going to heal or cure, quote unquote, them in this one hour because they have been doing this for 30 years. So right. I tell people to let go of their Jesus or their God complex. Like a lot of folks need to let that go. Yeah. Like you literally are not that powerful. Right. And so when it comes to just being um, a vessel, it's like, just be happy that you're the vessel. But how they get there is their work. And so I literally lay down most things after work, even if it's 9 p.m., um, knowing I'm going to come back to the office at 9 a.m. I lay it down. I don't really feel it. I go home and have a cocktail and a nice glass of wine and yeah. some good, some wonderful crab legs, you know, some, with some good <laughs> butter. You know what yeah. I mean? And so I'm really not thinking about how hard their life is. I'm thinking about, oh, wow, I'm so, you know, just happy to have, you know, the ability 
to work with them, be effective and help get them there. I tell people that even when I work with batterers that like, you know, maybe men that be women or women that be men, because hello, that happens all the time. It's like, I'm here to help them hit their wives less or rapists. It's like, girl, you work with rapists? Yeah, I work with rapists. I work with murderers. I'm like, I'm here to help you kill less people. I'm here to help you rape less little boys. You know what I'm saying? Like some people don't want to talk to them because they're so judgmental, but you don't know what their life was like to get them here. And so for me, you have to really come with the pure heart to be able to do this work um, and then leave it there at the office. Um, Because if you don't, then you're going to start being as heavy as the patient. And I, like I said earlier, it's very, very um, unfortunate when the clinician or the healer or the pastor or folks in authority start bleeding on the people that need them. And it's because Mm -hmm. they're not dealing with their own hurt. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely right. Absolutely right. This is great. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation in person. I've definitely got a lot of knowledge that you could share. So um, I thank you. And I also, too, just want to say to the people listening, this is an example of uh, multitasking. You're on your way to a speaking engagement, right? Oh, no, I just I just left one. Oh, you just, you just and left. I'm on the way okay. to get something to eat. No, you're right. Okay. This was literally, <laughs> this is great. And I appreciate you keeping the time. See, that sure. even that alone as a progressive um um, professional, it matters when another professional can tell that you are going to monitor and, you know, hold the boundary and the time. It's yeah. like, this is when you want to continue to work with folks. folks we got we to gotta really remember what we're doing. It's like, you got to maintain integrity in all that we do professionally. It, it really yeah. matters. Networking, like you were talking earlier, is everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely agree. Um, so I definitely appreciate your time, your insight, and your knowledge today um, on the show. Definitely let the guests know that's listening where to find you at on social media, your website, and all those good things. Oh, I appreciate that um, you sharing your platform. Yeah. I am on Instagram and Facebook. Um, it is Doctora Tasha at D-O-C-T-O-R-A, doctor with an A, which is Spanish for doctor, doctora, and then <laughs> Tasha, T-A-S-H-A, Doctora Tasha. And so either that or my website, if you want a session, um, it is www.drivebytherapy.org. When you reach out, I will not be able to see you for another three to four months. That's the norm. Yep. Okay. Please, please, yep. please, please know that. But I look forward to talking to you whenever you do. Absolutely. For sure, Dr. Tasha. So I definitely appreciate it. I'm going to see your time today. Um, I'll be in touch. You enjoy the rest of your weekend. And, uh, you know, keep on leading and keep fighting a good fight for us. Oh, you too. I appreciate the interview. You are wonderful at this. Thank you. Thank you so much. So talk to you. See you soon. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into Dreams by Any Means Motivation Station, where hustle plus faith equals success. Stay tuned for the next episode.